Civil Sentinel Podcast. Gentlemen, good evening. How's it going today? How are you doing? Evening, doing pretty good. But yourself? We're good. Sunday evening. Wish it was Friday. I know. It's weekend the middle goes- of my days off because I work a weird schedule. Uh, weekend goes too fast. It always does. Well, time for another episode. Uh, I'm Civil Sentinel. My name's Jake. Uh, joined by Florida Man Outdoors, Tito. Yo. Back again. And this week we got Anarcho Bacon on. Greetings. All right. We're going to dive today into uh, a little bit of uh, Anarcho Bacon's experience. Uh, He's well-versed in the P25 digital world of uh, comms, doing a bunch of stuff. He's got some good uh, content out on his, I almost said channel, on his Instagram page. So, Anarcho Bacon, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, How long have you been in the comms? What uh what got you into comms? So I originally got into comms about uh end of twenty fifteen. Yeah, so about uh, about eight years with uh some organized militias back when I lived in Missouri, just for basic team comms. Only really started to, to get hard into it after I moved to New Mexico about three years ago. And uh, you know, started with the Kenwood equipment on GMRS and then uh, after I started my company, I uh, began to run our land mobile radio program. So uh, we work with uh, P25 equipment, mostly EF Johnson, Kenwood, Motorola, and uh, I'm the system administrator, named licensee, et cetera, uh, for that, that small program. I also uh, radio sales business. I do have a YouTube channel, so you weren't wrong uh, when you said channel. And, uh, you know, the Anarcho Bacon Instagram page, which I use for uh, all e-coms, propaganda, information, proliferation, etc. My day job, I work in the mining industry, work with DMR, P25, video equipment uh, every day. That's awesome, man. I know uh, I've learned a lot from your page. I've only been in the digital for a year and a half, going on two years. I've learned quite a bit in your Instagram and uh, some of your YouTube content. So I uh, appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, sure thing. That's exactly what it's for. I'm just trying to get that, that uh, what was previously sort of closely held tribal knowledge in uh, the public safety LMR community, uh, particularly with regards to P25 and specifically P25 hardware encryption. We're trying to get that proliferated into the, uh, the broader, uh, I guess you could say prepared civilian community, although if that helps anybody else in uh, you know, business LMR, that's great. We want them to have that knowledge too. Yeah, it ha- kind of has been a, uh, a guarded knowledge, hasn't it? Why do you think that is? You know, I think it has a, a fair bit to do with uh, A, the security behind some of the public safety LMR uh, systems more so than the technology and B some of the, the ways that those companies particularly uh, Harris and Motorola behave with share software uh, being willing to deal with uh, non-agency clients that's mostly where it comes from it's not uh, like all the, the TIA P25 specs the key loading specs uh, that public domain information and you can uh, go out on Tate's website and 
you know, read all about the way that the P25 protocol is structured, read about how P25 standard trunking works, just read all about it. It's the, the application stuff that tends to be closely held again, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's done for business reasons in a lot of cases. Are you into ham radio as well? You know, I have a ham license. I sometimes talk on uh, 440, sometimes on P25 with a hotspot. I wouldn't say that I am into ham radio, though. I do uh, play with it from time to time, but it's not a primary interest. Gotcha, gotcha. Ham radio was kind of my starting point for uh, learning about comms and comm-related things. And, you know, that got me into DMR, which stepping stone from there was a P25. I've definitely noticed a huge uh, rift in the ham radio community when it comes to uh, digital, especially P25. Um, oh, gosh, you were uh, you're spot on about that. If you ever get on QRZ or QRZ, it's the, the real hammy hams call it. Some of them are pulling their hair out about digital and say, oh, it's not real radio. The FCC needs to ban it. It's not real ham radio <laughs> unless it's AM or you're using or uh, you're using CW on HF. VHF and UHF aren't real ham radio. Ham radio isn't real ham radio. Damn hams, they ruined ham. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. He's right, though. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting conversation. I I. Th- I've kind of, I've said this in the past, uh, especially in some of the chats on Instagram, but I kind of view the ham radio guys who are very passionate about it. And there's a lot of good ones out there that are very educational as well as redundant in how they communicate. But I kind of see them as they, they use ham radio as a hobby. Their end goal is to communicate over radio versus uh, kind of on the MCOM and CATCOM side of things, uh, this is the civilian tactical world, the, the gun industry, uh, the stuff that kind of we all post about. Uh, radio is, is a tool in the toolbox. It's not the end of the road. Um, so I think that has a big role to play in, uh, in that rift. You know, I completely agree with that. And coming from uh, more of a commercial and mobile side of things, I think that's why I tend to get along better with uh, the MCOM, TACCOM guys, because at the end of the day, when I'm underground or, uh, you know, down on the 3,500 level of, uh, of copper mine, my video out there, it's, uh, it's A, an emergency lifeline, and B, it's a coordination and planning tool. It's, I'm not down there to go talk on uh, on an XPR or 7550 or a VP100 or whatever I happen to be using. I'm down there to get a job done. And the radio, as you said, is just a tool to help get that job done. Exactly. I know for uh, training purposes, we use radio to coordinate because cell phones are just for some radios quicker. Radio has the ability to be a more secure communication platform than cell phone and more reliable because you're not relying on an existing infrastructure to communicate. It's it's end to end. You're right. And that's uh, both a strength and strength and in some cases a weakness because you are limited by the infrastructure that you can provide when it comes to two way radio as opposed to leveraging you know, the, the Internet, uh, some third-party companies, LTE or 5G or, you know, whatever other protocol happens to be available. Absolutely. So uh, do me a favor. There's going to be a bunch of people listening who have never heard the 
term land mobile radio or LMR. Can you give us a quick five minute elevator pitch description of what LMR is and how it's different than ham radio? So land mobile or LMR is commercial and public safety radio. It's also used to refer to uh, non-tactical as in uh, non-sync cars, frequency hopping, uh, or other radio in the military sense. So, you know, when you see a, a police officer or a firefighter or a utility worker, anybody like that communicating via radio, that guy doesn't have to get his ham radio license to talk on a, a, an apex for his job. He's operating under an agency or corporate license, which is, uh, that's the distinction. I was going to say, how is LMR regulated versus ham radio? Because everybody out there who knows anything about ham, uh, you know, you go get your license, you have to start your transmission with your call sign, you have to ID every 10 minutes with your call sign, and then you have to end your transmission with your call sign. Tell us a little bit about uh, how uh, LMR is different in that regard. So LMR uses uh, the repeater tends to identify, and in some cases the base station will identify. I remember uh, when I lived in Missouri, we would hear after every tone out, the dispatcher would end the transmission with KD-231. Uh, probably you can look that up in the, the FCC uh, ULS database and see where that was. It's a, it's a corporate license, so they're, the way that that works is you fill out, you apply for an FRN for that company or organization with your, your EIN, and there's going to be another way to do it for, uh, for nonprofits. You uh, apply for an FRN, then you fill out a license application. Uh, you'll have to get frequency coordination if you're going to be using a, a site-based or non-itinerant frequency, which is essentially... Uh, a title search for a frequency in a given region to make sure that you won't interfere with other users. You uh, give the FCC your eligibility, which is to say educational, business, or philanthropic uses, or the, the main qualification under uh, 90.35A is you know, what's generally going to be cited. That that license is then held by the the company, the nonprofit, uh, whatever entity rather than any individual. Right on. Yeah, that's very different. There's a, a lot of legal differences there between LMR and the ham world. I know there's a, a big difference in the frequencies that are available on LMR as well. Uh, and that you mentioned itinerant frequencies and uh, getting a frequency coordinator. And that's kind of how you get assigned a LMR frequency. Is that correct? It is. The, both of those are correct. Uh, an itinerant frequency is a frequency that is assigned for use uh, typically on a shared basis at various locations for indefinite amount of time. There are also typically shared frequencies with no protection against co-channel users. So say you're licensed for uh, 464-500, that's a real common one. Uh, there's probably numerous other legal licensed entities on that frequency a big city so you're going to have to figure out how to work around each other uh, coordinated frequency you won't have a co-channel user usually so under some some cases there could be overlap but typically you will not have a co-channel user you have exclusive use of that frequency for a given distance around a defined point which you know might be your uh, your office center or your plant uh, your tower site, something like that. Right. And I think it's worth noting that um, hams cannot use uh, the business frequencies that are out there. Uh, that's a big no-no. 
Uh, oh, it is a very big no-no, and there have been several of them. Uh, one up in, uh, I want to say Idaho, some ham who was uh, trying to talk to firefighters, and then some other Yahoo absolute lid who actually managed to get an enforcement visit from the FCC over some stuff involving uh, a stuck a stuck PTT on an HF radio at his cabin, and he then programmed up an XTS twenty five hundred that with a duplicated ID that affiliated with the the Colorado I think it's the CTRS or DTRS uh, a Colorado state uh, emergency trunked radio system and caused all kinds of issues radio got inhibited FCC got involved. Uh, it's a bad time for that guy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Man, that's pretty bold. What was that guy thinking? He probably wasn't. Yeah, doesn't sound <laughs> like he was thinking at all, really, unless he was just trying to wreak havoc. No, as right. far as can tell, he was just trying to use it as a scanner. And I don't know if he was deliberately trying to set it up so that he could talk because he could transmit on that system. He could transmit and affiliate and then it would pull that affiliation away from the subscriber ID that he duped and potentially cause a, a life safety issue for whoever had the, the radio whose ID that he duped. So he wow. essentially cloned a active uh, radio ID that was out there. Yes, that is exactly what he did. And that's kind of a, a I'd say almost equivalent to identity theft. But in the uh, public safety communications realm, that's got to be frowned upon. It is. It is steeply. It is steeply frowned upon. Uh, that's one of the big reasons that uh, newer systems you're starting to see uh, LLA or link layer authentication, uh, where the radio itself is assigned a unique cryptographic key that it uses that the system uses to off-cape that radio. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Is, is is that a new thing coming out? Is that, a uh, I guess, a new tech being applied to uh, LMR? It's been out for a bit, but it is, uh, it is still being rolled out to new systems. And uh, particularly Motorola has applied that on the DMR side with what they call RAS or RAS, which is Restricted Authentic restricted access to system it's just uh, you know a 10 digit or similar access code for that system that's confidential it's not transmitted over the air anywhere and that ras code had to be entered into the subscriber radio for it to be able to access a repeater otherwise or key up you can have the color code talk groups time slot everything correct won't access the repeater so that's a good um, that's a good transition point. You mentioned color codes, time slots. Um, I know DMR, anybody who's out there with and familiar with DMR, uh, DMR uses TDMA, uh, which splits the time to, uh, read, what is it? 15 millisecond blocks of time. And, uh, one block is time slot one. The other block is time slot two. And then, uh, you have your color codes and color code is kind of the equivalent to on analog radio, a, uh, a CTS tone or a DCS tone. Um, and I think that it's worth mentioning that the uh, the difference between uh, DMR and analog, on analog, on simplex, you just need to punch in a frequency. DMR simplex, you need to punch in your frequency, your time slot, your color code. Um, what can you tell us about P25? How does it relate to DMR in that regard? I actually believe that on a programming level, 
P25 has more similarities with analog than it does with DMR. Uh, you do have the option to program a time a uh, talk group, but typically you're just going to be using what's called a NAC, which is a network access code. Now you can you can use your uh, your own NAC. Say uh, it can be in hexadecimal or decimal format. You can use one of several special NACs. Like you can use, I believe it's F7E hexadecimal is the equivalent of uh, digital carrier squelch which will unmute for any traffic on that frequency, any P5 traffic on that frequency. Now, on uh, an air interface level, there's two different flavors of P25. Since you're mentioning simplex, that means it has to be P25 phase one, which can be conventional or trunked. It is FDMA or frequency domain multiple access, like analog uses typically C4FM or uh, constant four frequency modulation type modulation with uh, 12.5 kilohertz channel width and uh, 9600 bit per second data rate on that. That's a lot of technical information. So you guys out there, uh, if, if you have any questions about that, hit up Anar Anarcho Bacon DMs. <laughs> about to get a slew of questions, man. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. DMs, comment, comment section is actually a great place for that because, you know, one person asks the, a question that I'm sure 20 others have. Absolutely. See it. I've learned a lot from your comment section, <laughs> uh, especially on the, uh, the 5100s. I got, a, I got a couple 5100s recently and uh, learned a little bit about them from you. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Gosh, I feel like I've turned into... Uh, I've taken over from EFJ technical support for uh, supporting the 5100ES platform. Man, it's a great radio. It I is love a those uh, things. it is a honking radio compared to these little DMRs, though. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a brick. We call them our uh, big black Johnsons. That might get this demonetized. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I don't think we're monetized anyway. <laughs> oh, thank God. No, uh, but this is uh this this podcast is and the Instagram page is strictly for the love of radio. We're not doing this for money. We're yeah. just doing this because there's a lot of people out there interested in radio, and you know I'm by no means a supreme expert. Uh, Tito is. <laughs> I'm definitely <laughs> but not. I'm an not. <laughs> and there's a lot of the uh, the public safety sysadmin guys who know a lot more about this stuff than than I ever will. Because you know we uh, we're all conventional. We don't mess with the we don't mess with trunking. So explain trunking for the layman out there. Uh, I get this question a lot, and and I've kind of uh, explained it as uh, you you key up on a on a control frequency, and that frequency is going to automatically reassign you to another frequency, uh, and that way it kind of manages multiple users on one channel without clogging up the system. Uh, would you say that's an accurate description? Because I've never used trunking. That's how I understand it. Yeah, that's a pretty accurate description of it. Uh, essentially, what it does, it, it takes advantage of the, the lo relatively low duty cycle of your average conventional channel and takes all of that wasted time away. So it lets uh, a very large number of talk groups share uh, a pretty limited number of RF. Say so you have a like a, a four-channel site, that's pretty common. If you wanted to have uh, that, only requires four repeater or four voice repeater 
control channel repeater and you can fit probably 40 talk groups on that that are only active say 10 percent of the time if you wanted to run that on conventional you'd have to have 40 separate machines with 40 separate frequencies so you're you're using a lot less infrastructure and a lot less spectrum because the, the RF spectrum is not infinite. Uh, getting more into these on that, your, uh, your channel is dynamically allocated to the talk group on a per transmission basis. So the subscriber is just going to look for, uh, when I say subscriber, I mean the, the mobile or mobile radio. It's going to look for the strongest control channel on its control channel list. It's going to transmit a, uh, a registration request to that site and then I remember I mentioned affiliation with uh, that goober up in Colorado. Uh, it's going to transmit a talk group specific affiliation request saying hi I'm here I'm on you know talk group 1100 which is uh, you know district three tack or something and then the, the repeater will then uh, send an acknowledgement and then uh, it'll route all traffic from that talk group to that radio and uh, I can get uh, I can get a lot more into it that's essentially how it works the the radio lets it know lets the, the system know that it is affiliated to a given site so traffic from that talk group will go to that site. I think it's safe to say that uh, most of us out here in the MCOM, TACCOM community, we aren't going to be using trunking. That's very safe to say. I think the, the closest that most of us will get would be uh, VOC or voice on control, which is uh, actually kind of an interesting topic. It's essentially single channel trunking that it's fairly difficult to explain. Anonymous alligator on YouTube can uh, probably is the better resource for that. He's got a, a cool system built up with VOC. Well, there you go. If, if anybody wants to take a, a nosedive into that, go check out Anonymous Alligator on YouTube. You mentioned something a few moments ago. Uh, you mentioned C4FM. Is that the digital modulation that P25 uses that standard? It is one of the two types of digital modulation that P25 uses. So P25, yes. C4FM is the primary modulation used for P25. Uh, you also have uh, what's called LSM, which is Linear Simulcast Modulation. It's uh, actually PSK or phase shift keying. And that's used for simulcast systems that are tr uh, simulcasting all on uh, the same frequency, uh, synced to each other, typically with a GPS disciplined unit. But for uh, multicast trunk systems and conventional systems, it is C4FM, which is a uh, constant for frequency modulation. That is a good transition once again into modulation. So let's back up a little bit, go back to analog, talk about what modulation is, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, if you want to be an efficient radio operator and uh, we've kind of beat that horse on other podcasts, understanding some fundamental pieces of radio is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is a requirement. And modulation is one of those along with uh, propagation. So let's dive into modulation a little bit. Let's, let's start with analog modulation and let's talk about how a radio wave is modulated to carry voice data because that's uh, uh i think that's the most fundamental starting point and one i think that's 
the component, if, if you understand how uh, voice data is modulated into a radio wave, then that is the building blocks for understanding how data is modulated into a radio wave. I think you, you, you pretty much got it pretty well uh, as far as, you know, just entering into the, the discussion of what modulation is. And then, you, you know, from an uh, analog perspective, you have uh, amplitude mod- modulation, frequency modulation, and phase shift keying. Yeah, phase shift keying is uh, phase shift keying oh. is the the other main type of modulation that you'll run into besides those two. Yeah. There's gonna be other stuff, but those are uh, the most common, I'd say. Yeah. Go ahead, Jake. You had something to say? Oh no, you said crack another one. Respect. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm drinking a, a local golden nail, and I can't get enough of them. So uh, nice. number number two for the show had to crack one. Cheers, fellas. Don't get too sauce. Cheers. Yeah, so uh, when I kind of had the modulation discussion with uh, guys who I'm teaching about radio, this is, these is guys who uh, we kind of do some training with, guys who are fresh into the ham radio world. I explain uh, modulation is, hey, go, go turn on the radio in your car. You got AM, you got FM. And uh, you can tell a distinct difference between the two radios. I think one of the most notable differences you can observe is if you drive around town, AM radio sounds a lot more fuzzy and you hear all the noise with it, where FM sounds clear and you get a more robust um, high, mid and low range audio. And that's why, you know, like uh, music is broadcast over the FM bands versus talk radio is over the AM bands. And I know out in rural America, there's um, some, uh, but that is, uh, that's a, a a great fundamental example of the difference between AM and FM. Uh, so Tito, you mentioned AM and FM. You want to break down uh, kind of what the differences are there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can do my best uh, to break the differences down there. So I'll start with AM or amplitude modulation and, uh, before you can really get into that, you kind of have to understand how the carrier wave and the signal um, wave are basically laid over each other and able to, you know, the the audio happen on the other end, essentially. So when you have uh, it, when you have a carrier wave and that can be basically just, you know, described as the your frequency of operation, which is just a constant wave of, of, a, of a constant frequency uh, that is then manipulated through the voice input and then all the parts in your radios. I'm not going to go into all the parts of the radios that make that happen, but your voice input is what I think it's like uh, yeah, the range at which we talk in is like in the kilohertz, very like extremely relatively, uh, it's extremely low frequency. And then we use a carrier signal, which is a much higher energy, higher frequency wave. And the equipment inside the radio basically overlays that that message signal over the carrier wave and manipulates it in an amplitude modulation. It uses the amplitude differences uh, from your voice signal entering the radio and then in the radio uh, manipulate that carrier waves uh, amplitude, which is basically the the strength of the wave as it carries that energy out and through the antenna and then through open space. The other radio's antenna receives that energy and then that enters the radio through the discriminator, breaks it all back down into voice that you hear out of the speaker, if that makes sense. (laughs) 
And just a quick uh, point of clarification there, human speech is typically from about 300 to 3,000 hertz. So, okay, hertz, uh, point three, Yeah, 0.3 to uh, 3 kilohertz if you want to use kilohertz. 0.3, that's right. Okay. and um, I, I didn't know that. I had no idea. That's, uh, that's good to know. Yeah, that's so actually, you, go ahead. That's actually where uh, the frequency range used for CTCSS comes from. It's uh, because it's sub-audible. And that way, the the radio can filter out all of uh, it can filter out the CTCSS so that you're not hearing uh, kind of that faint rumble, and you know everything below that that 300 kilohertz, the microphone throws it out, and it's just used for signaling. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of a poor description of it, but uh, you sort of get the idea. Yeah, yeah. So the CTCSS is a sub-audible tone that's transmitted with the carrier wave. That's basically overlaid with your voice signal, and then basically the microwave, the the microwave microphone on the receiving radio filters that tone out, so you don't hear it. And it's just used to key up, and like you said, like the CTCSS is privacy tones, basically just like your radios have to each have this privacy tone set to uh, to you know effectively communicate between each other. It really frustrates me that companies brand them as privacy tones. What they really are is interference ignoring tones it just yeah. controls the squelch of the radio it doesn't give you any privacy it just uh lets you not hear the guy down the block yeah exactly <laughs> if you're using the same frequency but can uh, can still cause interference amongst each other you can just you just won't know why oh yeah it doesn't allow you to multiplex or anything like that yeah um let's throw out there the fact that dcs on your Baofeng, that is not digital encryption. That is a digital tone. <laughs> digital oh. crypto service, dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's people out there teaching radio who don't know anything about it, and they're teaching people that DCS is encryption on your Baofeng. It is not encryption. And using a tone, that does not uh, equate to privacy communications. It's anything but. Bro, don't you, you know that? Go ahead. <laughs> You need to show me who's saying that so I can find him and smack him over the head with a dead catfish. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I prefer putting a catfish, uh, under his seat and turning the heater on. There you go. That's a war crime in the state of Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of bad, uh, radio education on Instagram, unfortunately. And, uh, um, there's a lot of people that want to, all right, let me, let me back up. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of influencers. I fucking hate that word in the, uh, gun community who are getting into radio now, uh, because radio is getting, uh, increasingly popular. And so they're learning a very minimal amount of radio and then they're turning around and teaching it. But unfortunately they don't know what they don't know. And they're teaching bad information because the gun industry is very trendy uh people are just eating it up they're like well this guy teaches other stuff and talks about guns and talks about it and talks about small unit tactics so i'm gonna listen to what he says about radio and and meanwhile he's really recommending like some obsolete icon marine radio from 2005 <laughs> absolutely get an icon marine radio Hey, those have DCS too, man. That's the best. But 
But uh, yeah, I think I think that's why you know all of us have the Instagram pages that we do. It's just uh, hopefully people will find our pages and learn something worth a damn. That's the goal. You know, I've I've said this in uh, I think the first podcast, but learning radio was kind of painful because all I had access to was the hams, and they aren't very good teachers. And then uh, a bunch of technical data on Google searches, and that was hard to understand. So, you know, I think there's enough people out there trying to regurgitate this information in a uh, understandable format that people are actually learning it now, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, Dude, I have guys show up in my uh, my Instagram direct messages saying like, hey, we're we've got, you know, a, a squad size element and we're all using 5100s or hey, like we've got a, a team put together and we all have uh, we all have like XTS 1500s and we're using uh, like we're using ADP or something like that when, you know, three, four years ago, it would have been how do I program my Balfang? Like these guys are actually deploying like real radios that have actual capabilities that'll actually stand up to uh to do use that actually have some level of comsec like i'm genuinely impressed people are learning absolutely yeah. the tide is changing and um, it is. you know i'm pushing for it with uh, the group that i train that i train with uh this is a uh, point of contention with our within our group i'm trying to get everybody to go to p25 and pick up 5100s because they are available and they are cheap and they are badass but uh as down here there there are 100 percent bought into dmr uh there's nothing wrong with dmr it's great it's just it doesn't have the same for it doesn't have some of the features and some of the options and some of the quality that p25 offers actually you know you can get surplus P25 hardware cheaper than you can get reliable DMR hardware. For sure. But nevertheless, they're dead set on using DMR and they're training, you know, using digital modes. And uh, there's an effort to uh, do some things that are a little in the gray area when it comes to encryption. But uh, more than uh, breaking the law, it's about learning how to use the equipment that you have at your availability. So in an emergency situation, if you needed to deploy it, you could deploy it. It's so much better than analog, man. And the radios are so much better than Baofangs, and it's beautiful. It's, it's nice to see that tide, that tide turn. Yeah, every time that I get those messages or somebody says, oh, comms and logistics helped me build a KFD shield, like it, uh, it gives me a little bit of hope that what we've been working on has not been in vain and we're, we're actually reaching people. Yeah. We're for sure. We're definitely reaching people. I have people messaging uh, me once uh, I posted a couple of videos of me like keyloading some of my XTS radios, and then uh, I had a couple of people message me like, "Hey man, I got a KFD shield laying here. I don't know how to make it work." And I was like, "All right, let's get into it." And uh, you know, a few messages later, it's like. Oh, it worked. I got keys loaded on my radio. And it's just like, I don't know. It's a good feeling. You know, it's like we were just saying, uh, the, the, I think the tide is turning as far as the communication standard is concerned. I totally Absolutely. agree. It's an awesome feeling. And there are a lot of guys in this community who are smart guys. They just didn't know where to look. And once they got a little bit of, you know, a little bit of nudging towards, you know, look at, uh, look at XTSs or look at 5100s or look at Vikings. Here's uh, a couple different key loading options. They're smart guys. They generally put two and two together and get it all working with 
you know, maybe even just a, a quick exchange like that like you described. Yeah, for sure. One of the exciting um, things to consider here is that, you know, it's kind of like the open source software community. Uh, once somebody picks it up, they're quick to uh, spit it back out. They're not gatekeeping the information. They're they're willing to share and teach the rest of the community. And uh, that's also a beautiful thing. That's how this is spreading. And uh, I love seeing that. Gatekeeping. Yes. Yeah, there's a word that uh, that's gotten thrown around. We're trying to do the opposite of that, trying to throw the gates open <laughs> so that people get this knowledge. Like we want them to learn. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty funny. I've seen, like you said, I've seen that thrown around a couple of times. Uh, people... Um, talking about pages like ours and it's just like how are you going to go scroll down my page and say I'm gatekeeping anything it's like I'm not going to hold your hand through the whole process Google exists but I can give you the the the, the baseline of what, you, what you're going to need to get it going something that you mentioned uh, you know you were talking about the, the DMR versus P25 fight is that, uh, is that a can of worms that we want to open on this tonight I think it's worth getting into. Okay. And I know you're the man to talk to about it. Uh, so you've got some experience. Experiment. You've got some experience with DMR, uh, also called Moto Turbo. Uh, yeah, I call it Moto Turbo. So, <laughs> <laughs> what What would you describe the difference between uh, uh, DMR and P25 as? Uh, or note some of the differences, because I know bandwidth is one of them. Uh, modulation is one of them. I think what most people are going to want to hear is what does P25 have that DMR doesn't? And backing up a step from that, what does DMR have that analog doesn't? You know, that that is a very good way to phrase it. And this is about to start changing pretty seriously because of some develops, developments in the LMR market. However, up until I'd say this year, the main difference was the hardware. As you look at them, they both use now the, the Ambi vocoder, uh, P25 Phase 2, which is uh, the TDMA trunked mode, and DMR both use the Ambi vocoder with a 12.5 kilohertz channel mask and 4800 BPS nominal data rate. They're going to sound very similar. Hardware is where the difference lies now because of the p25 mark which is you know public safety uh fire police military uh mining oil and gas utility emission critical work that hardware is all built to a very high standard and it's subject to uh the p25 cap or compliance assessment program through Department of Homeland Security, making sure the equipment is essentially up to snuff. It's all built to a very high standard. When new, it's very pricey. Now, DMR, it's unfortunately been sort of corrupted. Uh, I, I would say that the Motorola DMR equipment is overall quite good. You know, it's not perfect. There's uh, there's things that I would change. There's things I complain about as an end user, but it's overall pretty good hardware. Then you end up with these uh, sort of half-assed MR implementations from Chinese manufacturers that have CryptoSync issues, and they're like they're mixing clear and secure data packets, and uh, just very very strange things that you know come with uh, with cheap Chinese equipment. 
you know, the P25 radio, you know you're getting something good. With the DMR radio, there's weird crap out there. And P25 is all more standardized. Uh, all of the call, alert, call alerts, encryption, other features, they're all compatible across manufacturers. Whereas with DMR, you, know, you might have uh, DMRA AS256, and then you have Maxon stuff that's running like some weird 128-bit ARC4 variant on, uh, what's it called? Um, I think the TPD-1000. And then you have uh, actual Motorola Arc 4, and then you have uh, Motorola Basic Privacy, and I'm sure there's all kinds of other strange proprietary stuff out there. But a lot of it doesn't all work together, so you can buy three different DMR radios, and you might not be able to communicate securely between them. You can buy three P25 radios from different manufacturers, and so long as they've got the same algorithms and those algorithm implementations are standardized, they'll all be able to communicate. It doesn't matter if you have a, a Harris, an ICOM, uh, an EF Johnson, a Motorola, a Midland, it'll all work together. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And when I was getting into DMR, um, I started with uh, the BTEC 6X2, which is kind of a, a standard for the group that I train with. Um, it's not a bad radio, uh, but it's also not a great radio. <laughs> it is a Chinese radio, um, and it's it's got its problems. Uh, but one of the things that we noticed is there's uh, a popular MR radio out there is the TYT uh, MD390, and it claims to have encryption on it. Uh, well, a couple of guys showed up with those, and um, uh, we tested the encryption to the BTEC 6X2. Didn't work. Uh, didn't work at all. Same with, uh, I think this is the radio that you have, uh, Tito, the Radiotity GD77. Yeah. Uh, is that the that's the one you got? I do have uh, one, yeah. That was my first radio, so, actually. Uh, we had a guy show up with one of those, and uh, it's supposed to have encryption too, but I think it is AES, but it's not AES-256. It's like... 128. I believe it's AES uh, 128. Yeah. AES encryption 128 bit is not compatible with 256 bit. So it didn't work. It made training complicated. Uh, yeah. You had to run everything it, clear. Yeah. And it, you can't just go, you know, cut your encryption in half. It's not that simple. You got to no. go into the software and uh, match the keys up. And it's a lot more technical when you're getting into it. And, uh, for the guys out there in the MCOM, TACCOM world, if you're uh, trying to learn how encryption works, uh, you know, there is some troubleshooting and there's some knowledge that uh, needs to be understood before you before you get into it. Um, so that, that is a downside. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, there's some other uh, cheap DMR radios out there. Let's see, there's a, kind of the all the ham radio brands, uh, Radiotity, TYT, um, Redivis, um, and then the BTEC and the Anytone. Those are it's the same radio, different firmware, but they basically, for all intents and purposes, behave the same way and have the exact same problems. BTEC um, is just a shiny fail thing. Pretty much. I mean, it is better <laughs> hardware. It's just not. It's not a, a high quality hardware. Yeah, but it's better. Exactly. Um, it is. It is better and, than a, than a fail thing. You know, uh, as far as uh. The hardware discussion goes, um, you know, there's the ham radio side of DMR, 
And then there's the LMR side of DMR. So once you step out of the ham radio world into the LMR world, you're getting into um, – actually, I don't know. Does Kenwood have a DMR radio? Oh, Kenwood has some wicked DMR radios. They have uh, multi-protocol radios that will do DMR and P25 in the same code plug. Yeah, there, there, is, that, some, there is some good – DMR hardware out there in the LMR space, but you're not going to be getting it from uh, from Radiodity or UIT. It's, it's going to be Kenwood, Motorola, uh, Hytera. I'll give Hytera some credit. They've got some cool stuff. Um, Maxon has good products. Tate. Tate is severely underrated in the North American market. The Australian mining companies love their Tate radios. I've heard good there, things. Is some, there is some good DMR hardware out there. But you have to do your homework, and it's not going to be, you know, ninety nine bucks with Amazon Prime free shipping. <laughs> right. Absolutely yeah. not. I've seen some Tate stuff on eBay, and it's going for like nine hundred to twelve hundred bucks if you can find it. It's very rare. They actually but, uh, have, uh, I think it's TP ninety eight hundred, and it's a uh, an all band P twenty five radio that does UHF, VHF, seven hundred, eight hundred megahertz, and if I have heard correctly, it should there should be a firmware update that will allow it to do P twenty five and DMR. That's that shakeup in the market that I was referencing. Uh, more and more companies are going to be offering the mode P twenty five and DMR radios. EF Johnson will be the first. Tate will be in there. Harris will probably do it. Bendix King might. The BKR 9000 is, or the Burger King Radio 9000, as I call it, is uh, sort of a rolling dumpster fire, but multi mode is <laughs> coming. Kenwood already has it with the NX 5000 series. See, that's awesome, man. That's yeah, like that's really the, cool. sw- the Swiss Army Knife digital radio. That's, that's what everybody's been waiting on. You know that's one uh, that's one aspect of the ham world. I will give a uh, an affirmative nod to. It's nice to have a multi-band radio that you can face program. Especially you know if if you're going to be uh, going into multiple different kinds of environments, like if you're going to be out on water, and then you're going to go into the mountains uh, or into a dense forest, you might want to change bands from VHF to UHF, and. Um, uh, a lot of the P25 radios that that exist out there, the in the surplus market especially, they're single band. You're buying one band, and uh, unfortunately, most of those radios exist at 700, 800 megahertz range, which is public safety. It's not available uh, for the ham radio bands. So having that kind of you know Swiss Army knife capability, you have one radio that'll do it all on different digital modes and have encryption capabilities, that's a game changer. We're going to gradually start to see that stuff filter out to the the surplus market. I mean, uh, Apexes, Apex 7000s, Apex 8000s, they're available. Uh, the Harris Unity is available if you're a masochist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Local Let's start price points. Here runs the Harris Unities, the 100Gs, I think. Yeah, the XG100P. Uh, they're discontinued, but a, a used unit is usually about a thousand bucks, and they are glitchy. They're fragile. You can't get parts for them. Harris almost refuses to admit that they ever existed. 
the XL200P is the is the successor, and they're you know you're still going to be paying a, a few thousand dollars. Talking price point for a new one. Yeah, and the AP. Let's talk about uh, the other LMR radios in the surplus market that are out there. Um, so we we've we've mentioned some of these in passing, but let's go down the list. Uh, I got an EF Johnson 5100. Actually, it's a uh, 51SLES, which is in the 5100 range. Uh, it's it's UHF only, though. It's, uh, let's see, 370 megahertz to 480 megahertz. Uh, Tito, you're, what are you running? I am primarily using uh, XTS 5000's uh, VHF, which are uh, 136 to 174 megahertz, if I remember correctly. And what about I you, Bacon? I'm primarily using uh, EF Johnson VP600 portables, and uh, I have one VP900 portable, which is uh, a dual-band VHF and 700-800, so two radios I can have all-band analog and P25 capability. I've got uh, quite a few 5100 ESs in service for, uh, for company and squad use. And uh, several 5300 ESs in base and mobile configuration, plus uh, a couple of uh, XTSs as well. But we're uh, we're primarily EF Johnson down here. So that puts uh, EF Johnson on the map. EF Johnson's made by Kenwood. Uh, that puts Motorola on the map. Everybody's heard of Motorola. If you didn't have a Razer Motorola cell phone back in the day, you weren't cool. Uh, Those things were cool. So Motorola, they, <laughs> they've made everything under the sun when it comes to communications. It's interesting because oh, uh, yeah. Motor- Motorola Mobility is the uh, like the, the consumer electronics side of things. And then Motorola Solutions is the radio side, not just LMR. They also have uh, like some FRS stuff, some, uh, some 900 megahertz license-free frequency hop digital stuff that's also slept on. Uh, and they're, they're separate companies with the, the same name. I did not know that, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, they're separate. I think that happened I know, about uh, 10 years ago. I'd have to check, though. There's uh, also RCA out there. They got a DMR radio, and I've seen a lot of uh, not good stuff about that radio. But the price point looks appealing. We talked about it on the first episode, Tito and I. I think it's the RDR 300, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was the three. You can find them on eBay for like 50 bucks. But the problem yeah. is there's no CPS available. And then I've seen a, a few guys on Instagram post about them, and they have major programming problems. Really? I uh, I talked to comms and logistics about it, and he was just like, oh, that's gross. He was like, yeah, I don't think I have the CPS for them either. And I was like, okay, damn. <laughs> I did a little uh, Googling, and I found a, uh, a radio reference forum that mentioned them. And somebody in the forum said that they called RCA – and RCA told him, if you want to program it, you got to send it to us and pay a fee. It's yeah. Like, Great. I mean, that's yeah. basically I'm, what Motorola wants definitely. you to do. There's something hysterical to me about a, a company selling Chinese radios that has a tighter lock on the programming software than Motorola does. <laughs> that's good. Let's talk I mean, about how easy it is to program these things, too. Because the, the 5100, 
there's a wiki page out there for it, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. But W nine C R whiskey nine Charlie Romeo. There it is, top of his page. One of the things he mentions about the fifty one hundred is basically been hoarded out, and everything is available for it. It's easy to program. All the information you ever want to know about them is available. And then there's Motorola. Ito, you're uh, doing some Motorola content on programming, and Ugh. you've got a little bit more experience. I wish you could feel my pain with the Motorola. It's uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love their products. It's great hardware. But the, the programming is extremely unintuitive. Or, I mean, it's it's really nuanced. Like, once you start understanding it and getting into it, it's very nuanced. And I started watching uh, Bacon's recent YouTube video about programming the 5100. I didn't even finish it because I was so angry at how easy it was. <laughs> PC Configure is excellent software. Uh, dude, it looks awesome. And I'm, and I'm probably going to pick up uh, some, some 5100s if I can get a, a good deal on them. Um, just to have is you know handout radios and stuff yeah you won't but regret it I don't there's think I will. i've seen uh this memo from efj alluded to they basically say you know once uh once we end support for the radio the the software is going to be out there we don't care if you use it have fun i haven't seen this memo but uh i, I work with efj tech support a bit uh, on different things and I, I have a couple of friends who work for them or have worked for them and that sounds like the, the kind of thing they do the the, uh, the depot equivalent just found its way out into the wild right after support ended funny how that happens yeah exactly um, um. yes but I uh, <laughs> that's why I'm making the content that I am because uh, the Motorola radios are pretty available they're not crazy expensive. Usually, they can they can be had for less than uh, what I would consider good DMR radios. Um, like I said, with, with P25, it's just maybe a little bit more nuanced. Requires some more hardware, as in you're gonna have to get a key loader to load keys because it's hardware based encryption that requires a an interface to load your keys rather than just using a programming cable in your computer, like with DMR. Um, and, uh, you know, if it wasn't for comms and logistics or, or guys like Bacon, you know, I've only been into the whole comms thing for a year and I've only been working with P25 radios for eight months, ten, maybe 10 months or so now. I bought my first uh, XTS from Bacon, actually, it was a VHF Model 1 um, last year and just kind of grown from there. I learned how to program it. Got some other ones, got a key loader, and uh, had a pretty good listing of uh, VHF Model 3s on eBay that were really cheap. And I got them, and they had extremely old firmware on them. It was like firmware version like 3.05 or something like that. And the radios almost didn't work. So I had to learn how to do firmware updates, flash code updates, and that information is almost non-existent on the internet. If you try and look it up or find forums on radio reference, it's just hams telling you to like send your radio to your closest Motorola service provider or something. And it's just like, yeah, I'm not doing that and paying money for that. So you got to learn it on your own. So that's why I'm trying to disseminate that, uh, disseminate the things that I have learned, create some 
pretty easy to follow YouTube videos so that if people want to pick up some surplus radios and they need to do what I did, uh, they can hopefully type it in right on YouTube or they found my Instagram page and they know where to go get that information when they need it. That's good, man. That's good stuff. And for you, Bacon, I uh, learned how to program this 5100 from watching your video on uh, YouTube. But, you know, I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten on Instagram asking, how do I how do I program 20 P25? I, I can program a ham radio. I can program a DMR radio. There's a million videos on YouTube. There's nothing out there on P25. And uh, I think, you know, with the effort of us and a few other pages, that's that's finally changing. And uh, yeah, that seems to be the goal. And I'm, I'm excited about that. I don't know about you guys, but I, I love the fact that there's uh, some a, a civilian interest in the LMR and surplus radios. It's it's finally kind of becoming uh, mainstream. It's it's still fringe, but it's it's becoming a mainstream in the in the fringe world. I guess you could say. Yeah. What I'm really excited for is when we start seeing the LMR market adapt to this. And I think that Kenwood has actually already started. If you look at the uh, the NX1000 series, they are uh, DMR and NXDN radios. The portables are IP67. And you can get them for less than $100. Yeah. So I understand that I really know anything about NXDN. I've, I've seen it referenced a bunch of times. Uh, I know it's popular in Europe. What's, what's the difference between NXDN and DMR and P25? So NXDN has two different uh, modes. It has narrow 9600, which is really a lot like P25. It's uh, 12.5 kilohertz, 9600 DPS, vocoder mode. It just works differently from P25, but uh, as far as the air interface, it's going to be pretty similar. Now, there's also NXDN uh, very narrow, or 4800, which is a 6.25 kilohertz channel mask it is fdma because it's so narrow band it's reported to have a much better snr signal to noise ratio and to have longer effective range than any other digital voice mode out there it's i don't think it's going to quite challenge single sideband but uh it's known for, for very long range uh, comparatively speeking it's yeah, just uh, a weird, it's a weird, weird mode. And uh, the railroads in the U.S. have uh, started to take a liking to NXDN. And some of them are starting to deploy NXDN equipment uh, alongside uh, their legacy analog radios. So when it comes to ComSec, does NXDN offer any kind of ComSec features like encryption? Yeah, it has, uh, I believe there's three different levels of ComSec that are available with NXDN. The first is a 15-bit scrambler, which I think is uh, some kind of XOR encryption, kind of similar to uh, analog voice inversion scrambling, but it has a 15-bit key. Uh, then there is DES and AES available uh, optionally for higher-end NXDN radios. Very cool. Right yeah, I've seen some of those. I've looked at them kind of here and there online. Yeah, don't shy away from NXDN uh, would be my guidance to people who are looking at it. Uh, do your homework, look at the hardware that's available, compare it to uh, to your requirements, and you might well find that it's something that would meet your needs well at a good price. 
Yeah. And okay. like you said, is it the NX1000s do DMR and NXDN, right? Uh, the NX1000 series does NXDN or DMR, and there's uh, there's separate models available for each. Okay. There's also an, an there's also an analog only version, so just uh, make sure that you get the right model number. The NX3000 series, which are in a the $600 a unit range and bear in mind these are new prices these aren't surplus radios these are new radios from Kenwood or from a dealer uh, those will do NXDN or DMR I don't recall if uh, they will only do one at a time in that code plug or if they can do both modes at the same time in the same code plug and then the NX5000 series which is uh, Kenwood's top of the line and funny enough, EFJ's uh, entry-level radio will do NXDN, P25, or DMR, pick any two in the same code plug. Okay, that's actually really cool. That's pretty cool, man. I, I should maybe look at getting a couple of those. Yeah, I'm thinking pretty hard on picking up some uh, some NX1200s and NX1700s for uh, ranch use. I do want to touch on a a disclaimer, a warning, if you will. So the EFJ 5100 is growing in popularity on Instagram. And if you get on eBay, you're going to find a whole bunch of them, but they're all going to be 700, 800 megahertz. Recently, there was a page on Instagram that was selling them programmed. Um, I think we should uh, let's dive a little bit into what the dangers are of buying a radio that you don't know much about the band. So the 700, 800 megahertz band. That's where your, all your public safety traffic is going to be, your fire, your EMS, your police, um, a bunch of municipality services. Um, and, you know, we kind of referenced earlier that gentleman up in, where was it? Colorado, Utah, yeah. Idaho. Yeah, Colorado. Yeah. Uh, interfering with traffic and got a visit from the FCC. Um, you know, that's a band. If you don't know what you're doing, you should never play around there. Uh, don't even experiment there. So... If you're going to get out there and look for some surplus radios, pay attention to that 700, 800 megahertz. If you don't know what you're doing, don't buy those things. Uh, stay away from them because you you might get yourself in trouble when you're meaning to experiment. Yeah. I mean, from the way I understand it, too, 700, 800 is basically uh, exclusively allocated to public safety usage. There's like no business usage or itinerant frequencies that fall in that range on those radios. So... Uh, yeah, you could be uh, putting yourself at pretty high risk if you start just just blasting away on one of those. There is some business use of uh, 800 megahertz, especially the upper end of 800, but that's SMR for special mobile radio. It kind of plays by its own set of rules, and it's best to avoid that band for... Uh, it's best to avoid transmitting on that band unless you know exactly what you're doing. Now, buying a radio for uh, receive-only use, uh, have at it. Just don't be that guy and affiliate to a system. Yeah, I've, uh, I, uh, I actually I ended up turning the Model 1 that I got from you uh, into a Model 3, and uh, I did that by buying a 700-800 Model 3 and stole its housing to put on my VHF radio. Took my uh, Stat 7-800 radio inside the Model 1 housing and updated the flash code and everything, but I haven't done anything with it other than that. I've been meaning to mess with it and try to set it up as like a non-affiliated uh, scanner for some of the public safety um, 
uh, systems in my area, but just haven't gotten around to it. That's a great use for 700, 800 radios. They're, they tend to be very cheap, uh, comparatively speaking, so they make great parts donors. Yes. It's exactly what I did. That's something I noticed uh, browsing eBay for the 5100 is uh, occasionally you'll find a 10-pack of them for like 150 bucks, sometimes cheaper. And I mean, they're not going to come with antennas or batteries, but that can be had at a reasonable price. Yeah, I mean, uh, after aftermarket fifty one hundred batteries are like twenty bucks, thirty bucks. Antennas are like dirt cheap. You can get an antenna for like ten dollars. Get a pack of antennas for ten dollars. But I mean, if you intend to legitimately use them for a business and go get yourself a Part ninety license and get a frequency in the eight hundred range for business, that's a hell of a price tag, man. You can't really beat that. You're not going to find any DMR for that cheap. You're not going to find uh, a lot of uh, quality analog videos for that cheap either. Nope. No, you can get XPR 6580s for less than 100 bucks for uh, a complete unit, but those tend to take some work out of the box. I like those things. The 65s, uh, that's the Motorola, right? Yeah, it's those uh, 900 megahertz DMR radios that we were discussing a couple weeks ago. Oh, okay. 6580, you said? Yeah, 6580s. I have a couple okay. of them. I thought, uh, I don't know, I heard it's 6550, which is, the, which is the traditional DMR by Motorola, right? Yeah, that's UHF, yeah. I think. Yeah, UHF, and there's also a VHF version. Yeah, but they don't do AES. I don't, do they even offer encryption on that radio? I just do ARC4. ARC4, okay. Motorola, yeah, they love their ARC4. They won't sell AES for turbo in the U.S. because it would take market share from Apexes, which are marked up heavily. Oh, that must be why the uh, police department in the town over running Motorola's. Uh, pretty sure they're they're running a Motorola DMR, but there's no encryption. I don't think public safety can use encryption. There's some kind of transparency law there. Oh, they uh, can. Yeah, they absolutely can. Uh, there might be something on a, a local basis that prevents them, or they might be required to have uh, recorded uh, to have recordings of the actual traffic for uh, for FOIA requests. They Probably. absolutely can. Yeah, I knew that. I went to a uh, a drone convention down in Austin a few years ago, and uh, at the con- at the convention they were they were doing drone use for law enforcement and rescue purposes and they had a bunch of radio dealers there they they were displaying a bunch of uh secure software uh, uh like video streaming services that they're using on the drones one of the one of the key talking points there was this stuff has to be available for uh public reference you know radio's got to fall in that same realm as well so i think if they're going to do encrypted they're going to record it and they're going to make it available to the public somehow yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's the way to do it. You know, uh, record the the actual audio stream, whether it's at the dispatch console, and then just going into a, like a, a network attached storage or something that's that can then be uh, accessed, and then transcript uh, transcriptions prepared as part of a, a FOIA request or however they want to do it. I mean, it's just like body cams, right? You know, they they have to release the body cam footage after the investigation's over. And, that's, a, that's a pretty good you know, comparison. 
I'm in the uh, I'm in the construction industry. We build commercial buildings. Uh, I just got done with a fire station. We're building another one. From the financial side of it, you know, you're spending taxpayer money, so all that stuff has to be available to the public for the public to see. You know, I mean, wouldn't you want to know how your tax dollars are being spent? I know, sh- sure as hell, I would. On on the same token, uh, wouldn't you want to know how? Uh, your local law enforcement and public safety is using radio and what they're talking about. Hey, our local cops just, are using VHF analog, so you can listen to them with a twenty dollar bell fang. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny the uh, the variance in kind of the uh, radio usage uh, where I live. Like I said, I have a a local police department a town over who's running DMR in the clear. The county that. Uh, city is in is running uhf analog just all in the clear you can pr- just take out your balfang tune to their uh frequency and, and you're good to go and then uh the uh county the other way like i was saying is using the uh harris um the uh, xg or x is the xg 100p whatever they're using over there uh, but they're actually using a full trunked encrypted system uh, on their end so it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of stuff going around, like a lot of different stuff going on on me. The absolute worst that I've ever seen is Eastern Pennsylvania. You'll have uh, one, you'll have, uh, you know, some guys on an 800 megahertz EDAX system somehow still alive and kicking. God knows how. It shouldn't be. It should EDAX should die. Open Sky should die. Uh, then you have some other guys running VHF P25. Then some get some uh, like five-man department has a uh, uh, UHF DMR and then the uh, some vol- other volunteer fire department is running analog low band. Somebody has Nexton. Somebody's trying to somebody just had to get forced off of Nextel when Nextel went down and now they're, uh, they're using cell phones and then it's just an absolute disaster up there. Yeah. That's, that's pretty funny. Good old government, man. You'd think they'd streamline and be efficient, but... That's what P25 was supposed to do, and then Motorola turned it into a money grab, made everything unaffordable, and then you have all of that stuff happen as a result. Uh, the emergency management emergency managers up there just must be pulling their hair out. Yeah, that's pretty funny. I don't know how the... I mean, I'm I'm sure the FCC sees dollar signs in all this as well. They they've, they've got to be making money off this stuff somehow. They're mostly making no, money I'm off no. of uh, broadband spectrum auctions. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's pretty it interesting. Sense. The uh, that county over using the Harris radios, they're actually Florida is using a uh, a slurs what they call a slurs system, which is a state. Law enforcement radio system, I think is what it stands for. And I haven't figured out how to actually tune into that whole system. I've tried my SDR and and using like SDR trunk and things. It's also hard to allocate enough time with everything else I'm trying to do to really try and figure that out. But I haven't quite figured out how to do it. If I, I go into radio reference and get all the information and plug that all into SDR trunk and then let it run, I get absolutely nothing. Are they still running EDAX on the thing, or did they finally go over to P25? No, they're running P25 on the, at least, like I said, the county over, and I got a couple buddies who are uh, deputies in that county, 
you know, I've seen their radios. I've handled their radios as long as they'll let me touch them. <laughs> I start pressing buttons and they get worried. Probably rightfully so, maybe. I don't know. But uh, yeah, they, I believe it still is an EDAX uh, system, which I can't figure out how to monitor. And I've been told by people on the SDR trunk forum that I, uh, or on the Discord, that I that that you can't. Yeah, slurs is its own thing. And I know Hillsborough County was running EDAX, might still be running EDAX. They were running, uh, what were they, Harris MPAs up until pretty recently. And there's some ridiculous thing from the early 90s that, you know, it's about the same tech level as a Sega Genesis. And the thing looks like an original Game Boy Down syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. You know, one of, the, one of the cool things about uh, building fire stations is we have uh, subcontractors come in at the end of the job and they throw up a, a big tower and they put a repeater up and they're putting all their radio equipment up. And this is not my job. It's always owner install, owner responsibility. But I'm always hovering over their shoulder. I'm like, what you got? What are you installing? How? What kind of what kind of coax are you using? What? Uh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just like super fascinated with what they're doing and. You know, it, it comes from my interest in radio and, and, but I mean, these, these, these fire stations, they have their pager, their P25 pager, then they have their radio systems that are all trunked. These are high dollar, high dollar systems. I mean, you're talking over a million dollars per station to set up. Yeah. But well, I remember it's, looking it's, at the, the bid for Pinal County's P25 system. It was, uh, the amortized cost per subscriber across the life of the system was thirty-seven thousand, and they were paying, I believe, one point two million dollars uh, per repeater site on that system. It sounds about right. It's it's crazy. And then you know these firefighters, they just get trained how to push the button and when to push the button. They know nothing about the radio. That's oh yeah, the exactly. Difference between ham and LMR, uh, what you were discussing earlier is the user is not a technician and they just have to know which uh which channel or which talk group to select and which button to push they're not programming the thing they're not building antennas or anything they are a an end user you know that's one thing i love about the 5100 you look at the top of it and it's got the little sub dial a b c there's your three zones and then you got one through 15 there's your channels so it's like, oh, I need to go. I'm going to go to uh, B channel seven. Cool. Good to go. Yeah, that's you how know, we do our There's no memorizing frequencies. You know, it's it's that easy. You know, we might say, uh, you know, our, our primary is alpha two. Uh, go to alpha six for tactical repeater. Uh, Charlie three is contingency. Uh, alpha 16 is, is clear, plain text, wide area coordination something like that and then you get into uh to the viking uh vp600 uh, vp6000 etc that have uh, a top display the apex 6000 and above that have the top display and yeah being able to look at all that at a glance is really cool yeah that top display man that's a that's a cool thing so if if you don't know what the top display is go look it up basically you can leave that radio in your pouch and you turn your dial, and and there's a little tiny CD screen on the top of the radio, and you can see which channel slot you're going to, um, all that stuff. You don't have to pull the radio out of your kit and 
unlock it and start pushing buttons to find your way through it, navigate and change channels and then lock it again. You know, it just stays in your kit. You just look down at it. It's right there. It's like one of the most user-friendly features that anybody's ever been to a piece of hardware as far as I'm concerned. I still love the old uh, TK90 series Kenwood portables from like 1996 because of that. Uh, they have that, that top display, the the Motorola MT1000, which I think is from the late 80s, has a, a top display. Uh, it's been around for a bit, and it started to come back in vogue with the uh, the initial Apex radios around, what was that, 2009, 2008, 2009? Are any of the new Viking radios going to have top displays? The VP8000 has, I believe, a four-line top display that essentially completely mirrors the front display. That's really cool. Actually, top display is the way to go. Yeah. Don't have to pull your radio out of a pouch or anything. So I, I run a Spiritus placard, and uh, I, you know, I, I run it because I can throw it on my plate carrier, or I can wear it as a S-rig. But I got those little Spiritus expander wings for the side, and the radio goes in there. Do you know how hard it is to get the radio back in that thing once you've taken it out? <laughs> no. It is a pain in the butt. So it's like, gosh, man, I'm the RTO too. So I'm going to put this thing on the channel it needs to be on. I'm going to put my headset on and my speaker mic on. And I better not have to take this damn thing out because I'm going to be fumbling my kit for three minutes trying to get the radio back in. Yeah, that's and a mess. Top display fixes that whole problem. Fortunately enough, in my current setup, I can get my radio in and out pretty easy. Yeah, I saw your kit on YouTube. What kind of radio pouch are you running? Saw my kit on YouTube? Oh, I'm sorry, not YouTube. Instagram. Oh, yeah, that post I uh, posted up. Uh, Right now, I just ordered a new uh, chest rig kit, but currently I'm just running a uh, a Mayflower uh, UW Gen 4 chest rig with the with a uh, with the simp dangler from uh, what is that onward research? Oh, nice, good gear. So, but yeah, a little side pouch. You know the the general purpose like side pouch over there. Perfect fit for an XTS five thousand, XTS twenty five hundred would go right in there, and EF Johnson fifty one hundred would go right in there, no problem. It's a really good placement for the radio. It eats up a GP pouch, but I have your radio on you. What about what you, I Bacon? Did. What are you, so, what are you running? I, I did something really, really weird and unconventional. Um, I was reading a, a bunch of uh, case studies out of Europe on Tetra radios, which is sort of the European uh, response to P25. And what they had really good luck with was get, was mounting or having their, their cops and firefighters carry the radio up high on a shoulder strap uh, like on uh, on a soft arbor vest or uh, load bearing equipment, uh, pack strap to get the antenna up above shoulder level, and they found that it increased range by something like sixty eight percent to do that. Yeah. Uh, so so what I did is I'm I'm using a, an old Eagle Industries Syflex harness. I got uh, an Eagle Industries Icom pouch, modified the retention strap to accommodate a VP six hundred, mounted on my support side shoulder. And I can use the, the PTT on the radio body uh, in conjunction with an earpiece. I just basically have the radio mounted where you would normally have a speaker mic mounted. And it, it really works quite well. 
plus it frees up space on my belt line for uh, for GP pouches, for additional ammunition, water, whatever else that I want to carry. Yeah, I could do the same thing if I uh, if I needed to for better signal quality. I can pop that five thousand. I keep a belt clip on it. And I got on on my current chest rig. I got a couple slots of Molly on the shoulder straps, and I can uh, I can just boom. It's not super secure. I wouldn't go running and diving and rolling around with it like that. But if I needed to for walking around in the woods, I can stick that radio up on my shoulder strap and leave it there if I need if if needed for better reception and better transmit. I could see that being a a good option. You know, there's those gooseneck. Uh, antennas that are supposed to help do that. Uh, but I got this uh, multiplier battery for my 5100. And I don't know if you've ever picked one of these up, but it weighs about 13 pounds. So, like, throwing that thing up on my shoulder, man. It's like, it's like strapping a cinder block on my shoulder. Oh, I got yeah, a nickel metal hydride battery. Yeah, man. That thing is, things are heavy. It's, it's like a, a car battery. <laughs> it is like a car battery. You can also do like an antenna relocation kit. You know, if you needed to, you can relocate your and just you can leave your radio in a pouch, relocate your antenna to your shoulder strap, um, and then all you need is maybe twelve inches of uh, of that pigtail coax cable with the appropriate connectors. You could, you could, yeah, you could totally do that. Uh, something that I like for uh, like, say, your radio is mounted someplace inaccessible. Uh, this only really works for XTSs and uh, Apexes. Motorola has what they call a commander mic that has a yep. channel knob and function buttons on the on the mic that mirror the controls on the radio itself. So you can actually have uh, pretty decent functionality as far as uh, you know your primary 16 channels, maybe a scan button on your mic. Yep, those those speaker mics are actually really cool. Um, I recommended one to a friend the other day who runs a, a speaker mic for his radio, and uh, he had one of those old EF Johnson, just super standard speaker mics hooked up to his XTS, and uh, for whatever reason, it started shorting out. I don't know what was wrong. It's too much stress was put on one of the ends or something. Um, it wasn't working right, and I told him to get one of the um, Commander 2s. Cause he likes just, uh, his radio is not very accessible. It's kind of, once it's in the, in the rig, it's, it's kind of, uh, stuck there. Is the commander mic, is that the mic that has the, the external antenna on it? No, that's a public you know safety I'm mic. I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I've, I tried one on UHF and I'm not sure what the issue was, but the, uh, the ERP was probably something like 50 milliwatts or some ridiculous stuff like that. It couldn't even get over a single small terrain feature. There's the whole debate out there about uh, running plates. Those cattail antennas are pretty popular. Uh, um, that's a bad idea because you're basically turning that steel plate into an antenna reflector. <laughs> We've kind of talked of our comms classes. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I had never thought of it that way, but that's certainly going to cause some very strange coupling effects. You'd be best off with uh, no plates or ceramic. That's a whole other podcast, but I'm glad that the ceramic versus steel plates discussion is being had because steel plates, you are going to have, you're going to get spalling in your chin or on your junk. That's going to hurt. It's going to injure you. Could even kill you. Are people still still defending steel plates? I thought that argument was over like three or four years ago. No, it's still. You know, you 
you, you would think so, but there's there's so many people getting into it, and especially after the 2020 riots, and AR500 is finally getting away from steel plates, and they're manufacturing like a aluminum oxide plate that's polymer. But there's still a huge market out there for steel plates, and I I meet so many people who are new to this, and they don't know any better. And one of the first things they think they need is a plate carrier and plates, so they go out and buy steel plates. AR500 is kind of the the go-to plate out there. Yeah, and, um, it's kind of funny. My plate carrier is probably my least used piece of equipment. I don't Chester even use mine is, to be honest with you. Chest rig is life. I just use my LBE. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just. I, I run a Spiritus with the the Whiskey Tango. What are they? What is it? Whiskey Two Four Expander wings on it, and I can mount some side pouches on it, so I can those side pouches off if I ever need to, and just strap three mags in my chest, or I can make it as wide as I need to, and or I can rip it off and put it on a plate carrier if I need to. But I don't ever use the plate carrier. I mean, from a tactical perspective, the only time you're going to need armor is if you're anticipating incoming fire in a defensive position or something like that but yeah, yeah in the desert out here that uh that extra heat can kill you in the summer like i carry uh you know over a gallon of water this is with no rock just on the lbe over a gallon of water uh water purification equipment uh usually i'll carry uh 240 rounds so uh or 270 including the magazine and the weapon Shelter poncho kit, uh, carry a whoopee, steaks, lines, food, uh, extra batteries, camo, you know, all the, the other admin stuff. But I carry a, a lot of equipment and the weight's distributed very well. So it doesn't really feel like uh, you're carrying as much as you actually are. And again, uh, no rock is required. So you can pretty well function for 24 to 48 hours depending on conditions out of uh, your second line gear very cool i i do very similar except for uh like uh, i was saying I, I run the chest rig and then i run an appropriately sized uh pack for for my mission or duration of mission dictates if it's just a day out i got a you know smaller day pack that holds my uh, water and things. If it's going to be like more like a day, two, even three days, I've got like a medium sized pack. And then if it's going to be like a extended thing, or if I just need to carry like an obscene amount of stuff, I got the full size ruck and works well with the chest rig. I was just actually, I sent it to civil in one of our other chats, but I just ordered a green force gear adaptive rig system, which is going to really help me scale up a, uh, my body carry kit, basically. The Mayflower is a good kit. It just doesn't quite do what... Uh, it doesn't quite carry everything I would like it to carry on my chest. So I have that Green Force gear kit on the way. I think it gets delivered tomorrow. I get to start playing with that and uh, and kitting it up and seeing what it can do. I got a buddy here who actually recommended it who's running the same kit in a split chest rig configuration and it's got a lot of storage. So I'm excited. Cool. So much of that comes down to individual preference with, uh, you know, a side order of Met TC. Yeah, Met TC. Met TC. <laughs> but we're gonna make Hoplophile mad if we keep saying Met TC. <laughs> I'll sneak it in a couple more times, you know. Met TC. 
coming into the radio conversation with Kit, you know, you need to consider, you know, how are you going to carry your radio? Where are you going to carry your radio? Can you access your radio? All that stuff. That's all uh, part of your uh, kit consideration, as uh, Lake Water Actual says. Oh yeah. You could also talk about, uh, you know, or we could also talk about how you're going to use your radio. You know, if you're going to be communicating with team members that are, you know, maybe a hundred, two hundred, three hundred yards away from you, but out of uh, out of direct line of sight, out of hand and arm signal uh, range. Or if you're going to be talking to a mountaintop repeater 40 miles away to relay your transmission to uh, a guy who's 80 or 100 miles away, uh, the way that you go about that is going to be very, very different uh, when it comes to antenna systems, possibly band selection. just the the way that it's done is going to be very look very different. For yeah, sure, absolutely. Our our uh, our fill selection for our radios is all local VHF analog repeaters. If there's ever an emergency and we need to get on our comms, you know, our primary is our cell phone. Our secondary is our radio, and it's going to be on the ham radio repeaters. From there, it's going to be like you need to get to a point where you can reach somebody in simplex range. The likelihood of that happening in this kind of vast urban area is is pretty slim. Whereas, you know, we've got 25-mile comm shots planned out with the... planned out and tested with UHF mobiles. It's pretty good. It's not that easy down in Florida. No, there's these things called trees down there that we have about five (laughs) of in our county. I think we've got more. We might very well have more cows than trees. You might. I can, uh, uh, we talked about it on our our last episode about propagation and and stuff like that. Actually, I I hit a three mile simplex uh, communication a couple weeks ago using one of the uh, intercoastal waterways that kind of runs east to west in in my area. It's pretty long, what we'd call a bay or intercoastal waterway. And I was able to shoot my VHF signal 30 miles uh, westward down that waterway all the way to the other side of it and and complete a communication that way. It was loud and clear on both sides too. I could have gone farther. That's 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 pretty great. But other than that, once you get buried in the trees, Without any hills, uh, yeah, you'd be hard-pressed to push more than a couple miles. I think the craziest I've done with UHF, uh, this was through a repeater. So I did uh, 89 miles with a TK390 stubby antenna up to a mountaintop repeater at 11,000 feet in New Mexico. From there, it went uh, another 45 miles or so to uh, another user with uh, a UHF portable on the other side of a mountain range. So we... Our total communication range was something like uh, 110 miles across the hypotenuse of that triangle with UHF portables through a repeater. That's good. That's so awesome, man. We're getting way in the weeds from where we started, but it's yeah, been a great discussion. Back. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can circle back. Well, oh yeah, I, I finished talking about like AM, and then we just. Dug and dug. Hey man, it's it's all good. You know, this is all valuable valuable content to discuss. You know, it needs to be talked about. And you know, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, I, I learn more from people just having a conversation than I do reading data sheets and and manuals. For sure, I do too. I'm a very mm-hmm. visual learner as well. And then field testing, you can learn so much from a, a few hours of field testing different equipment. That's oh, where yeah. the rubber meets the road. Oh yeah, for sure. We talked about that with resilient civilian. You know, there's there's yeah. the theory of comms, and then there's the 
practicality of it, and they don't always line up. I don't know if he missed his PTT, but yeah, you're right. No, they don't. Uh, they don't always line up. What they're gonna say? Oh, uh, if we wanted to circle back, I can. Uh, I can jump into uh, kind of covered AM. You want me to see if I can or FM? Go for and it. An hour later. <laughs> yeah, an hour later. <laughs> I think it has literally been like an hour. Uh, it's gonna be an awesome podcast if you guys are still sticking around. Uh, FM, kind of similarly as I was describing to AM a little while ago, is uh, kind of the same thing, but a little different. So the, the signal uh, wave or what would be known as like your voice co- going into the radio uh, is then laid over the carrier signal. And it, instead of the internals of the radio uh, altering the amplitude of that carrier in order to uh, encode uh, the, the signal wave, it will it, it FM frequency modulation slightly varies the frequency of the carrier wave. Um, the signal wave is overlaid over that. And then that is then, like I said, with AM is passed to the antenna out into the air, received by another antenna where it is then deconstructed by the receiving radio and through the speaker that way. Yeah, that's how I've, I've always understood it is. Your frequency is going to adjust. It's going to become... Uh, a tighter frequency or a looser frequency off that baseline frequency. And, yes. Uh, which the, which would encoding. be your, which would be your carrier. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to be tuned in that carrier frequency. You know that. Yeah. One four six dot eight eight four six two dot one two. Yeah. And uh, th- those are two common. You know, that's VHF frequency, UHF frequency that are pretty common. But yeah, that that frequency is going to be modulated it's going to carry the data it's going to be translated back back into your voice yeah uh, if you're more of a i was gonna say if you're more of a visual learner like i am too it's super easy just go to youtube type in radio modulation like how does radio modulation work and uh, the first couple videos that pop up are pretty good um yeah it's been a long time since i've, I've watched them but when i was first getting into things you know there's there's a plethora of all this very basic stuff uh, on Google and on YouTube. And uh, like I said, I'm a visual learner. So it's good for me to even see somebody who just took the time to like make a visual depiction of what these waves are doing. And it really helps you kind of like picture it in your head or that's how my brain works at least. Oh, definitely. And, you know, uh, recently Terminal Armament has yes. made a couple visual reference posts uh, using a uh, frequency or what is that tool called it's getting late i'm getting tired he's, he's made a, uh, a visual reference using a, a spectrum analyzer and so it shows the, the 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 sine wave you know at that frequency and he's kind of modulated it a little bit so you get a visual reference of how that modulation works yeah so that's a good quick go-to reference if you want to go check out terminal armaments page and, and see a little bit of, more about modulation in the carrier wave so have we discussed the mechanics of digital radio at all or uh, just more of the nitty-gritty i don't think we've really gone into the mechanics the actual like how does um you know, I kind of explained the two main uh, factors of analog modulation, but we haven't really talked about the uh, how digital is now overlaid that car- onto that carrier wave and how that works. Yeah, I think that's we should probably cover that. Uh, so I mentioned earlier the uh, AMB or Advanced Multiband Excitation Vocoder, 
uh, which is a voice encoder decoder. So there's an additional step on radio. The human voice is converted by the, the vocoder to a digital bitstream, which is then transmitted over the air in a, a manner that depends on the the individual waveform being used, you know, whether it's DMR, P25, Nextin, Tetra, uh, God forbid, D-Star. <laughs> uh, and on the other end, the after the signal is received by the, the receiving radio, the vocoder on that end will then reassemble that digital bitstream into its approximation of a human voice. Now, again, that's an approximation. There's going to be uh, there's going to be some data lost. It's going to sound a little bit robotic, uh, and the implementation of that of that digital voice mode, your audio settings, uh, a variety of things will affect the fidelity of that reproduction because it's it's kind of like the Star Trek uh, transporter where it, it blows it apart and then puts it back together as best as it can. Now, uh, in a really good implementation like what uh, like what Motorola or EF Johnson have, it often is more intelligible in terms of uh, DAQ or delivered audio quality than analog. There can be some really impressive background noise filtering and in high noise environments like you might see uh, on a fire pump panel or like in the in the cab of a piece of open cab equipment underground. Uh, you can have some really, really impressive results where you're standing two feet from an engine running at full throttle. It sounds like a jet trying to take off. And it sounds like the guy's about standing right next to you because the noise cancellation is just that good. Yeah, that's pretty that's awesome. wild. I don't have any direct experience with using radios around that kind of a setting, but that's what I have uh, mainly understood from following your channel. So um, from what I understand about digital modulation is, and I'm not an expert on this, digital modulates the same way that FM modulates Right, except for yeah. yeah. Let me th I'm think. Let me think about this out loud. So, you got a uh, your different modulation types. You got a frequency shift keying and phase shift keying. So you're modulating the frequency on frequency shift keying, phase on phase shift keying. So frequency shift keying digital modes are going to modulate the same way FM is. It's just going to sound different. Like if you heard fact if any of you have a sdr and you scan the bands at all i'm sure you've come across a digital sound and it just kind of sounds like a weird consistent modem noise um but uh phase shift keying is slightly different than that but still kind of in the same ballpark it's going to sound similar just slightly different and essentially uh, what it what it is it's the that digital bit stream where it's uh for C4FM, I believe there's there's four different states that are going to be somewhat similar to binary code. Uh, it's not exactly, but that's a, a decent way to start thinking about it that contain the actual information that is then uh, encoded or decoded by the, the receiving vocoder and put back together into speech. Or it could just be straight data, whether that's uh, like uh, some kind of packet data, uh, a call alert packet, a TMS packet, 
uh, OTAR, OTAP, anything like that. That's fascinating. And I know there's a, a few wiki pages out there. Uh, you can go find uh, different audio samples of what the different modulations sound like. And uh, if you want to get into signal intelligence and SDR and identifying signals, it's worth going and looking some of that stuff up and getting a good reference audio sample of what those different digital modulations sound like. They, they do differ. They're not all the same. And uh, it's kind of a good example of what the raw audio digital sounds like. Yeah, I think it's a SIG ID wiki or something like that. It's a sig signal identification. That's a really cool wiki, a really cool resource. And they'll have uh, audio files. They'll have uh, SDR waterfall views of different waveforms. It's a great resource for signals intelligence. Yeah, that's cool stuff, man. Uh, I'm kind of getting into, into that finally with SDR Sharp, downloading some of the uh, uh, plugins that you can use to demodulate P25 and DMR and have you used, uh, have you gotten DSD plus running? Uh, I've got it. I've been playing with it. I was playing with it this afternoon. Actually, I haven't got it running yet, but, uh, I need a little bit more time with it. I'm just so freaking busy. I can help you get that running if you need. I'd love to. In fact, we should do a whole episode on SDRs. Get it. That could be a whole series. <laughs> yeah, a whole series. You're right. Get Vlad on here. I know. I'd love to. We need to talk about the, uh, SDR stick. That's a cool tool, man. Where's my stick? Did you order one? No. I should have, though. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I, I follow his page uh, pretty closely, so I uh, he, I heard about the whole thing. He had trouble with uh, the suppliers and stuff, and also he got way more orders than he anticipated getting. Good for him, man. Dangerous rabbit hole, man. They really are, but it's so much fun, dude. Well, eventually you get into ADSB, and then you're uh, like you're plotting the orbit patterns of FBI surveillance aircraft during riots, and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, did you hear that podcast? There was a podcast that talked about a a, a guy uh, using a, a ADSB in LA. And uh, he was tracking all these uh, aircraft uh, uh, flying transmitters. around. Yeah, the, 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 the transmitters. And he found a, uh, an aircraft that was constantly circling Lay Valley. He was looking at all the flight records and it wasn't listed. And then finally, they, he figured out through a lot of research that it was a FBI surveillance craft that was basically constantly airborne and... Uh, it had a uh, stingray on board, and so it was picking up phone traffic and uh, yeah, it's locating an EW, individuals. EW plane. Yeah, yeah, that stuff is doing stuff they're not supposed common. to be doing. And see, they'll they'll pull, get the uh, the ADSB feed providers to pull uh, those transponders from their service, so you won't be able to see it. However, the transponder still needs to be powered on for. Uh, safety of life and uh, air traffic control deconfliction whatnot so you could still receive the actual signal because the signal is still there even if whatever website is blocking it yeah exactly so you could be if you, if you did like have like a str stick or built your own uh standalone adsb receiver um 
you could be cross-referencing that information with uh, uh, whatever the web, I forget the name of the website that's, you know, the just a live ADSB website. FlightAware. That's right. And then you could cross-reference uh, what you're seeing on on your standalone receiver to what is on FlightAware. And then all of a sudden you can find a plane that's not on FlightAware, but you're picking up an ADSB transmission from it. So you know it's up there. And then those are the ones you want to keep an eye on. Yeah, and you're That's getting a really into a smart uh, trick there, right there. Yeah, and you're you're getting into uh, constitutional violations at this point because they're collecting data that they're not supposed to because they don't have a warrant, and they've been caught by hyper vigilant, you know, hackers. Pretty much. Are you telling me the government's going to get permission from the government to do things that the government doesn't want the government to do? Oh, the government would never hurt us, man. Come on. <laughs> I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Run. <laughs> the base drops. Totally different podcast, but that stuff's interesting. We start with modulation, and we get into InfoWars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's pretty funny. But, oh, well, was there anything else we were going to cover tonight? Oh, I man, think we that talked about uh, a lot of stuff. We have We've hit digital and modulation pretty well. And we didn't beat the horse four times on this one. We got into the weeds a bit, which is fun. I love doing that. I think the you horse know, there's is still nothing twitching. wrong. The horse is still <laughs> twitching. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with a good run on conversation. You know, uh, one of the things I love about podcasts is people just get on and talk. I've learned so much from so many different podcasts. So. And I'm having fun just having the conversation at the same time. So, yes, so much. I know that uh, there's going to be a lot of people out there that just, you know, you pick up little nuggets here and there from us shooting shit and having run on conversations. So, do with I it get, what you will. I get to learn stuff too while I'm at it. And if, if you guys have any questions, Anarcho Bacon, where can they find you at? At Anarcho Bacon on Instagram and Anarcho Bacon on YouTube. And of nice. course, we got Tito. Tito, Florida Man Outdoor on Instagram. That's uh, also the YouTube. I need to make more content because it's just hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, I got some, we all have day some, jobs. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, work and, and family and keeping up with the house. And, uh, you know, I start slacking on everything, it seems like, but I know. Don't stop. Stay busy. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm working about two and a half jobs now. So there you go. Yeah, I'm working yeah, on. Uh, I got some content planned. I need to. I need to make more time to sit down at my computer and uh, work with uh, the radios a little bit more. And I plan on doing some uh, SDR content as well here soon. So stay tuned for that. I swear it's on the way. You know something we got in the books cooking up here this year is HF stuff. Uh, just got my general license. Uh, a bunch of folks here, here in Texas had their general's license. We're going to start doing a once a month HF net here in Texas and get Austin, Houston, DFW, West Texas, Panhandle, do a, uh, uh, QR, you know, low power invis on the air meetup one evening a month. Just do a, a check in between all of our little friend groups here and 
uh, I'm gonna start posting some of that stuff when it comes up. That's a that's a pretty cool way to keep in touch outside of the internet, outside of cell phones. You know, you're gonna get a lot more uh, semi-local, long-range communications. That sounds uh, awesome. I saw a guy uh, driving through town today, just on my way home. Uh, he had a, a screwdriver, uh, self-tuning HF antenna on his pickup. He had an over-ear headset with a boom mic, and he was just driving down the, the highway, talking on HF to probably some guy in Japan or something. <laughs> HF is really neat technology, and it's Man. old. It's old technology. It, it's reliable, too. I say that. There's a lot more science that goes into HF than there is, HF uh, is VHF and UHF. HF, that's kind of the funny thing about radio is they call it like it's, it's like an art and a science kind of all in one and HF seems to be more of an art still science two words for you space weather (laughs) (laughs) but the earth is flat the earth can't be flat if the earth was flat that's what pushed everything (laughs) off the edges it's right it's donut or it's a flat disc on the back of a turtle no I've I've heard it described as like actual, just like donut-shaped tube that's been bent into a circle. And the hole in the middle is Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh, that's funny. Well, gentlemen, it's been a good talk. Covered yeah. a lot of ground. It was a good uh, time. Keep up the good work. Keep the posts rolling. I'm learning from you guys. I'm having fun talking about this stuff. Let's do it again sometime. For sure. Yeah. All right, guys. Have a good night. Night. Y'all take care.